Hi, this is Mandy Griffin. And I'm Katie Swalwell. And welcome to Our Dirty Laundry. Stories of white ladies making a mess of things. And how we need to clean up our act. Everybody, a quick note before you start listening to this episode, um, we want to send a, a note of care and concern and solidarity for any of our listeners who are Asian, Asian American or Pacific Islander. Our hearts are with you at this very scary and stressful time uh, in the wake of the shootings in Atlanta. And not only that, but in you know, the the xenophobic and racist attacks of the last year and just a very long history of racism and xenophobia against Asian American Pacific Islanders and Asians in the United States. We promise that we will draw special attention to this in future episodes, but uh, we just wanted to make a special note that we're thinking of you. Uh, we are with you and we are figuring out ways to do what we can to stand in, in meaningful solidarity with you. We love you. Hello, it's Mandy and Katie. We're back. <laughs> Welcome to our Dirty Laundry Podcast, a podcast where we tell stories about white women being complicit in white supremacy. And we're two white women who don't want to do that. We are available wherever you get podcasts. I, shout out to Mandy, who is our Instagram goddess, because I still honestly cannot even understand how it works at all. And we also have a website and a blog, ourdirtylaundrypodcast.com, and a new feature on our blog, we are working to get some swag up that we're hoping will generate income that we can put towards the organizations that we're featuring in our podcast that are working for racial justice and working to disrupt white supremacy and rebuild and build a better world. Um, but on the podcast, I was excited because I figured out a way to make a, kind of an interactive map of where we have listeners. And Mandy and I are so grateful to everyone for listening and for sharing and being excited about what we're doing. And, and we're just thrilled that other people are similarly interested and want, want to come along with us on this journey. And it's an interactive map where you can see places all over the world, honestly, where we have people listening. So check that out. And what we'll um, do with the map is we promise that some of our minisodes would focus on local laundry. And so when there's a, a mass of people listening in a place, we will zoom in and figure out the history of white women's shittiness in your area. What a gift to all of you. And then we'll tag that on the map. So we'll, we'll build up a dirty laundry pile, um, connected with where our listeners are. But I, I was really excited and super humbled and just very, very grateful to listeners that are connecting with us from, from all the different parts of the world. Now, I that love, being said, oh yeah, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, I love getting messages from people like on yes. Instagram and Facebook. People have been sending us little notes and like my first question's always, how did you find this? Cause I don't think I know you. And I'm always <laughs> yeah, like, I know. someone I don't know is listening <laughs> yes. to this podcast, which is super exciting. So we really appreciate that. It is being found and passed along to other people and write, write us a note. I write back. If you write to Katie, <laughs> I will probably write back pretending <laughs> to be Katie. No, no, no. I, I will just text Mandy asking for very clear step-by-step -step instructions about how to post a comment on Instagram that won't be weird. So yes, I, I will also try to interact with people. We've got emails. 
Um, it's our names, Mandy, M-A-N-D-Y, and my name, Katie, K-A-T-Y, at ourdirtylaundrypodcast.com. Um, and then take a look at the map. And if you know people that you think would like this podcast and would be into it, and you see that there's a place that we don't have listeners yet, maybe that's a good incentive to send it their way. Um, yeah. I, I won't name any names. I don't want to shame any states, but there are a few places that well, I'm about to do some state shaming <laughs> coming up here okay, in this episode. It. So <laughs> oh, good. I can't wait. Well, I, I can't wait before we jump in because I truly, truly am so excited to hear what learning you've been doing today about the post 19th amendment voting rights struggles. But I did want to shout out in our last mini-sode where we talked about the fallout over Harry and Meghan's interview with Oprah. And I said that there was a tweet I had seen and I couldn't remember who it was from. And I dug through Twitter, my Twitter laundry, and found who it was. It's Christina Coleman Mullen. She works for Care in Action, which is a nonprofit that builds political power for 2.5 million domestic workers in the U.S., which I think is just a, a really cool uh, organization. And it sounds like she does a lot of writing and um, she's an editor, etc. But I was able to find the tweet and I thought it was really powerful. So one of the things we were talking about was how frustrated we were that Kate, as a white woman who could be in solidarity with her sister-in-law, who's a woman of color, and validate and confirm what she's saying, um, but isn't. And Christina Coleman Mullen says in Twitter here, I see people on here shocked that Kate didn't step up to clear the air about the quote, Megan made me cry story. But if you have ever worked with white women, you have experienced this silence, this complicity, and many of us are still traumatized by it. Hashtag black women at work. And I like, I'm constantly reflecting on ways that I have failed at this in past relationships and past work situations. And um, just something that I, I wanted to give her credit for that tweet. And, and it's just something I'm really like, constantly reflecting on and um, trying to figure out how not to be shitty colleague, basically, and friend. Yep. Good points. There we go. All right. Give me all your learning. I cannot wait. (laughs) We're going to talk about how we have been shitty to colleagues and friends and other women. (laughs) Um, So we're going to move on now to the post 19th amendment. And when I was first looking through this, I was like, oh, what am I going to put together to do an episode? Because at first glance, like just Googling women's involvement in mm-hmm. voting rights after the 19th Amendment, there's not like the volumes and volumes of books and articles and news things and whatever that we found for the suffrage movement itself. Mm-hmm. So at first I was a little discouraged, wondering where I was going to get all of the information. Um but now I'm like, oh, this could maybe turn into three episodes easily. <laughs> um, this is great. Yeah, I think today I was going to try to do up to and including the um, Voters' Rights Amendment or the Voters' Rights Act of 1965. But I think for one, that could use its entire own episode. But oh, sure. two, there's enough in this front, this first part before that to talk about that it'll take up enough time and I don't want to short the 1965 movement. So mm-hmm. we're going to leave that for the next time. I think, um, I, but, let me say this. I, yeah. I am, this is like stupid. I can't believe I'm going to admit this to you. Mm-hmm. My mother-in-law dropped off Trader Joe's chocolate covered sea salt almonds. Mm. Are you familiar? I'm familiar with a lot of Trader Joe's. Goodies, but <laughs> they I don't, are, don't they are addictive. And the fact that I 
like am here talking to you. Like I would rather talk to you and learn about this than eat them. And that's saying a lot because there's pretty much <laughs> nothing else I'd rather do than eat those just like fistfuls of them. So I will probably crack it open after we're done. But I was like, oh, do I have time to eat these? No, but actually that's okay. Cause I'm way more excited about listening to you. So you're like the I'm biggest so compliment I could give anyone. Well, I'm also super glad you decided not to eat almonds on the podcast, because as Josh would tell you, I'd probably reach through the computer and kill you. <gasps> Chewing noises are my oh. biggest, <laughs> biggest I thought maybe you were going to say like, I'm anti-almonds. They're so terrible I for mean, the earth, which oh, is well, so true, yeah, like the farming true, carbon footprint. But no, chewing noises, I agree. <laughs> so like all of those um, MMS or whatever that's called, yeah. where people watch YouTube videos of like people Sounds? licking envelopes or whatever. Oh, I It makes my stomach a, turn. Yeah. No, I could take my blood pressure and go straight up. Okay. I'm but not going to Our blood pressure is going to go straight up here in a anyway, moment. Anyway, okay, great. Get it. Get it, get it. Okay. So are we so, starting in 1920? What's the year? Set yeah. I mean, yes. Yeah. Well, we're going to start We where we left off, as we remember, where little Mr. Harry Byrne, 24 years old at the time. Tennessee. I don't know if we... Yeah, the Tennessee senator mm-hmm. who... You know, basically made his mother proud and made true all of those anti-suffragist claims that we originally talked about, about the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. Mm-hmm. When he fulfilled his mother's request oh, yeah, and dream. So true. It's like, oh, no, <laughs> they were right. But haha, it came back to bite them. <laughs> right. And also he and his mother, or at least for sure him, were like very into educated suffrage. Like we want yeah. certain people to vote, but not other people based on... Yeah there are perceived sense of their dignity and worth. Yeah. So we left off with this 24 year old man child saving women (laughs) and (laughs) making Tennessee the 36th state to ratify the 19th amendment. So, and that's all that matters, I guess, because once it's ratified, whatever. But I did go back because I was like, I want to see who hadn't ratified it at that point and how long it took them to do it. So one, I want you to guess. Because <laughs> you're petty w- AF and we don't That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> one, I want you to guess what was the last state to ratify and to okay. what year okay. was it finally ratified by all of the states that originally existed at that time, the 48. Okay. Who would you guess? Oh, gosh. Okay. I'm going to guess like... Georgia or Mississippi, like a Ooh, deep. You South got it state. on the second one. Oh, Mississippi, Mississippi, oh, Mississippi okay. was Mississippi the last state to ratify. Um, Georgia was almost up there. Georgia ratified it uh, maybe like fourth or fifth to last. And I will okay. give you a hint by telling you that the year that Georgia ratified it was 1970. No. No. Yes. Okay, so Mississippi is after that by a few states. Mississippi is after that by oh a few Oh my god. States. Okay, I I was going to guess like 1970 and feel like I was overestimating, but mm-hmm. now I feel like mm-hmm. I have to guess something totally absurd like 1992. Okay. Well, we're going to give them a slight bit more credit, but in my notes I wrote Mississippi in motherfucking 1984. <laughs> oh my god. We were alive. <laughs> 1984 is when Mississippi finally ratified the 19th Amendment. So does that mean that, I mean, women could vote? Oh, yeah, yeah. So we'll get into that because some of the states tried to sue based on that, but... 
And I say women could vote, but we know the whole point of the of the next few episodes will be how the voting access to the ballot was super restricted based on race and class. And I I, so I get that. But I I guess my point is, like, did the 19th Amendment not apply to them or it did apply, but they just hadn't ratified it applied. It applied because it doesn't matter. But so it's basically just like it's basically a non-consequential like stamp of approval. But the fact that these states still still refused to do it until that point of time is ludicrous town. This reminds me there was a fun fact or like a not so fun fact. And this doesn't have anything to do with race specifically, but I'll get the exact year. But women couldn't open their own credit card. Oh, yeah. In the 1970s, even mm-hmm, it mm-hmm. was like late 1970s, early 1980s that women could get their own credit card. I'll yeah. get the exact date, but it was just something like what yeah. I think our generation of women born in the 80s, I think, takes a lot for granted. Honestly, yeah. I mean, I'm, that's a sweeping statement, but I'm shocked. 18, 1984. 1984. Yeah. So I'm going to run down okay. the last 12 to verify just because if you are listening and you live in these states, you might find it interesting. Mm-hmm. So real quick. Connecticut, 1920. So they were just a little bit behind the ball. Mm-hmm. Virginia, 1921. Delaware, 1923. Maryland, 1941. Virginia, 1952. Alabama, mm-hmm. 1953. Florida, 1969. South Carolina, 1969, Georgia, 1970, Louisiana, 1970, North Carolina, 1971, and Mississippi in 1984. And then I wrote gross after that. There's (laughs) no way to think of those states and not think, of course, that has to do with race. Yeah. Oh, yeah. A hundred percent. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Crazy, crazy town. So they didn't matter because all it took was the 36th, but they still decided to be punk asses and wait forever to do it. Um, But it was still, there were still legal battles challenging the 19th Amendment, even after it had been passed Mm. and ratified. There's just a couple of them that I wanted to bring up. And a lot of them focused on this question of whether or not the 19th Amendment was self-executing, which is just what you were talking about. So the movement, Mm. the, the amendment was ratified. Did that matter to states that hadn't ratified it like Mm -hmm. could they use their constitution to say we're still not going to allow it that's basically or Mm -hmm. was it self-executing which means it doesn't matter it's going to change your amendments even if you don't agree with it Mm -hmm. which obviously ultimately the courts ruled in favor of Mm -hmm. um so the one of the main ones of those is lesser versus garnett Um, which asserted that the 19th Amendment destroyed state autonomy because this was brought in Maryland and Maryland had not. Or wait, let's see. Hold on. At this point that it was brought, when did Maryland? Oh, yeah, Maryland did it in 1941. So at the point that it was brought, Maryland had not ratified it and their state constitution Mm -hmm. limited suffrage to men. So they brought the court case stating we don't have to follow it because our state suffrage says suffrage is only for men yes Mm -hmm. and the supreme court said get the fuck out basically um and and this is where i'm going to assert you bring up the state's rights arguments and i'm just going to say broadly not a political science major don't care if this is what i'm (laughs) i think we very clearly established that we don't have we really don't have the proper credentials for this at all but i i trust us to be very responsible students i think we make it really clear we are students of this yes okay yes but my personal opinion is, come at me, political science people, states' rights is just another code for white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And 
basically stating anytime somebody brings up a state's right argument, that should just trigger in your little mind what kind of fuckery are they trying to be up to in this argument? Because every part of history where I've seen states' rights be argued, it is always some bullshittery they're trying to pull Mm -hmm. to cover for it. And it usually has to do with white supremacy, but it somehow protects whatever institution is in power. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I just don't find it to be an argument that I I'm with you. I mean, now that I'm even thinking like when that has been argued in recent years, it's either for like transphobic stuff or super racist stuff. Like either way, it's all about suppressing rights when somebody brings up a state's right kind of argument. Or even Mm -hmm. I was thinking about like, Mm -hmm. I don't know if this pertains again, not an expert, but I was thinking about Texas's argument or Texas's whole power grid system that just came up in the big freeze that they just had. And the problem being that Texas is on its very own power grid because they don't want to be subject to the federal regulations of whatever regulates the power industry otherwise and that's their whole like we're an independent state states rights argument except for that then it just totally screwed over all of your you know population when they basically froze and then you had to ask for federal assistance so i'm i'm against states rights saying i am too i mean i'll say it too we can jump off that cliff together and hopefully people understand why we're doing it but (laughs) i i think what it just triggered for me was in our last mini so we were talking just about the hyper individualism that whiteness promotes and perpetuates Mm -hmm. and it's almost like the states rights argument dovetails off of that hyper individualistic frame like we don't need you like we're going to do our own thing and we and of course i think it does get marshaled that our own thing is like really bigoted and racist and homophobic and awful and you know other things but it's also this like the the history of our confederation of states is like this distrust of not wanting to join together i don't know i've not thought that through all the way but i'm just struck by the kind of hyper individualistic, like we don't need anybody else kind of attitude that just is so pervasive. Anyway, yeah. Come to our other podcast where we talk about um, infrastructure, <laughs> which <laughs> also <laughs> also not experts, but we'll tell you what we think. Why not? Why um, not? Yeah, I mean, and we even learned that when we you were talking about the different suffrage groups and the break off, like the one that oh, was yeah. focused on making it mm-hmm. a national. A campaign and the other group that went off and said, no, we're going to fight this at the state level. And that was basically so they could acquiesce to the southern states that wanted to still codify white supremacy into their right. constitution. So anyway, states mm-hmm. rights, boo, down with that. And <laughs> the Supreme Court told them to get bent. So um, the other <laughs> Please tell me that's what that actually says. It's just yeah. two words and like a very official <laughs> brief with like a leather bound gold embossed case. And you open it up and it just says like. Get bent. Get bent. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Close. I'm sure Ruth Bader Ginsburg <laughs> or Sonia Sotomayor, like, I'm sure they've wanted to write that opinion at various times. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so the other case um, that was significant because it was a major change to precedent um, in, by the Supreme Court and still used today is Fairchild versus Hughes. So Char- Charles Fairchild, and I'm going to call him Manchild, um, <laughs> Was. You're on a tear with man children today. Oh my gosh, because they're a pain in my ass. Um, <laughs> form, he was a former U.S. Secretary of Treasury, and he was the Attorney General of New York. He challenged the validity of the ratification process 
as a whole because he said that some states, particularly Tennessee and one other, didn't follow their own laws in ratifying the amendment. Mm-hmm. Um, the Supreme Court basically said they weren't even going to listen to him make this argument. One, because he was in New York. And so they said he lacked standing to even bring the case because he didn't live in a state this that he was so much saying like the election cases recently, like the state yeah. suing Pennsylvania or whatever. It's like, no, Texas, you can't sue Pennsylvania over what they did to make a decision. Yeah. Does yeah. So that's what that? they said. Yeah, that was part of it. It's probably related somehow, if you understand legalese. That's our other podcast, Supreme Court Cases. <laughs> We've just got a lot going on, you guys, and we're very busy and educated people. <laughs> oh, so they said you live in New York, so you can't bring this case. Also, New York already allowed women the right to vote before the 19th Amendment was even passed. So get oh. out of here on all accounts. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Plus, they also said at the point he brought this suit, more states had ratified it who didn't invalidate any of their state laws in doing so. So they're like, be gone with you. And off he went. (laughs) So So that was that. Um, So I think, though, that I loved this quote that was in one of the articles that I used for today, because I think it's applicable not only to women's rights, but just to any of these social movements where we think we have these like political air quote victories, um, Mm. where we think we win. So let me just flip through to this page that I hope, oh no, no, I wrote it out. I don't have to flip to anything. Uh-huh. Oh, no. So um, this article that I'm going to use a lot today was written by Ronnie Podolewski. Um, and I didn't look up anything about them. I really should have. The only thing at the end that it said that I had to bring in because we're Iowans and that's oh. what we do is uh-huh. that Ronnie was an associate at when he wrote he, she. Oh, that's bad. I should probably find that one out when yeah, they yeah. wrote this. Uh-huh, um, uh-huh. They were an associate at Frerich's law office in Waterloo, Iowa, and they got their JD at the University of Iowa College of Law. So Iowa going at it again. So (laughs) they said opposition to women's political power was deeply entrenched in the society and was unlikely to suddenly and completely vanish between August 25th before the passage of the 19th Amendment Mm -hmm. and August 26th when it had been passed. Mm -hmm. And I think that just kind of sets up the whole rest of this. Like usually Mm -hmm. the women's suffrage movement ends at 1920, you know, Mm -hmm. in our history books and what we're taught it passed. Everything was glorious, but of course it didn't. And of course, none of these fights that we are involved in, Mm -hmm. in social movements are ever going to be these changed victories the moment that legislation is enacted. Mm -hmm. There's still, Mm -hmm. you know, there's still a fight that happens about it. And that clearly happened Mm -hmm. with voting rights. So when thinking about the like sexism combined with racism, like, oh, that's not going anywhere. No, you know, you don't flip a switch on that. And just thinking about how like the 1920s as being the peak of the Ku Klux Klan and Mm -hmm. like when a bunch of federal offices were racially segregated, just like all of the efforts to push back on any victories, like a, like a groundswell to just like shut down any of that progress. So I'm, I'm sure, I I mean, as you talk today, I, I won't surprise me to hear that people weren't about to let a bunch of black women get political power. Let's say or women of yeah. color, broadly speaking. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Great. Yeah. So note to say these fights do not end. And mm-hmm. here is where we're at with this. So short of turning of overturning the ratification of the 19th Amendment, the and we'll just say it's what the focus is, southern states in particular, um, turns to their whole grab bag of disenfranchisement tricks that they had been <laughs> using to suppress black men in voting since mm-hmm. the 15th Amendment to now suppress the 26 million women who were eligible to vote after the 19th Amendment. Um, so I'm going to quiz you. Can you <laughs> name a few of the tactics that have been used starting back in that sweating. time? I just started sweating. <laughs> to my turtleneck. Uh, I told I told Mandy I look like a German art dealer because I'm wearing like full head to toe black <laughs> today and like a very ridiculous black turtleneck. Um, I will say literacy tests mm-hmm. and poll taxes mm-hmm. and grandfather clauses, mm-hmm. which I don't even know if that's it, really. Yeah, you're just okay. I, I don't. Is that even like an an appropriate term? Because it. I mean, I think in that sense, maybe it is because you're literally saying that it was the clause that said if your grandfather had or grandparent, maybe I don't know if it was gendered, had been enslaved, you could not vote. Is that what it said? I actually. So I looked it up because I was trying to see the same thing too, and I don't know which way it goes. Now that you say that, when I was reading it, it was like a lot of white people were or white men were exempted from some of these disenfranchisement tactics Mm -hmm. because they were saying if your grandfather could vote Mm -hmm. then you're automatically allowed to vote oh i see okay i see i think that's what i read but interesting yeah okay so grandfather clause literacy test poll taxes yes yeah yeah okay okay so those are definitely among the top ones there were also um one of the main ones that we're going to bring back up in a little more specificity in this episode were white primaries, which so in this old South, it was basically one party rule. The Democrats ran the South. And so they made this restriction on primaries, which I'm not sure how that worked for the whole legalese of it, but somehow legally they could say, okay, fine, everybody, black people, women, whatever, are allowed to vote in the national votes or the state final elections, but they could restrict the primaries to white people only. Oh my God. Yeah. And that was basically a de facto election because it was only one party anyway. So whoever won the Democratic primary was going to be the person that won Mm -hmm. the overall election. So the voices then of women and black people, or I mean black people because it was white only primaries, but the voices of black people in the next vote, the, you know, legally encumbered one that had to allow them to vote didn't matter because the, the person who was one already was determined in the primary. That and was how you say who the candidates are. Yeah. So, right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, so. This, though, led to all these restrictions led to only about a third of eligible women voting in the first national election after the 19th Amendment was passed, compared to about 70 percent of men who voted that and proving once again that you can play the game, you can fight the fight in the end, you're still not going to win. They're not going to let you get ahead. They're going to come up with these things to keep you out still. 
I'm wondering too, like the list that we just went over, you're right. Like all of the ways that a victory is very partial and, and temporary, but those, those were all legal ways, but I'm thinking back now, like you're triggering all these memories from when I was teaching history that even just like threats of violence or threats of like being fired. Like if you, if you apply to vote or like get on the voter registration rolls, we'll check that and we'll fire you or like lynchings at this time were peaking. So I imagine that there were like legal things, but also extra legal, but where, where the legal system looked the other way. Yeah. Yeah. And there's tons of considered things to consider under each of these that can also Mm. be exploited in those ways too. So we're going to get into some of those. Um, So, but I know what you're thinking at this point, you're thinking, where is Carrie Chapman cat? (laughs) What, (laughs) what is Alice Paul up to? Like, I am wondering, yes, shan't because... these women come to the front line and fight against all of these restrictions that are going to take apart what they have dedicated their lives trying to get us to, right? They're going to oh ride God, in yes. on those white parade horses yes, yes, and come to save down. us, right? And I think what I'm also wondering was the logic behind the compromises they made that they went along, like, you know, whether you think they agreed or not, they went along with white supremacy to get the vote passed. Like you would think if it were just tactical that they would immediately shift and be like, okay, we secured that. But so now we can come help fight with you, which I obviously am am very skeptical that that's what happened. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. I tried to look this up and there, there's a little bit. So, um, Carrie Chapman cat, it says, Um, After the passage of the 19th Amendment, Kat's public career within the suffrage movement was mostly over, and she began to transfer her attention to other causes. Mm. Hooray. Mission Um, accomplished. (laughs) Great. She did found the League of Women Voters, which was mainly Mm. organized to educate women about their new right to vote. But as far as fighting against any of these disenfranchisement topics, they were very cautious in leaning any support, especially at the national level, because they didn't want to polarize themselves or alienate their Southern supporters. Once again. Uh, It makes me so mad. It's like you say it and like that you could have filled in the blank. Like we could do racist lady mad libs, like pull out the nouns or like the time period. And it's the same, it's the same same thing. Like, Oh, oh, I just, I wouldn't want to alienate my racist neighbor. Why? Yeah. Yeah, Why not? Why not? Well, like, of course we do because we Mm -hmm. don't want literacy tests and pull taxes. Like, Oh my God, that just, I mean, I should not be surprised. I'm not really surprised. I'm just so disappointed and just, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And many chapters of the League of Women Voters, the state chapters, especially in the South, of course, were specifically only allowed whites in their membership. So -hmm. they just straight up didn't even allow black women to be Mm -hmm. part of it. So way to go, Carrie, and your legacy. Um, Please, if you have it, go back and listen to our interview with Alan Nosworthy and Wesley Harris, who are part of the 929 movement, yes. which is actively trying to, among many other things, have the um, Hall and Center for Women in Politics no longer named after Carrie Chapman Cat on Iowa State's campus. It's a wonderful interview, and we were so lucky to have them. So check yep, it out. And you'll learn more about 
the fuckery of Carrie Chapman cat in that <laughs> episode. Um, yes. So Alice Paul, who was also mm-hmm. in the last suffrage episode where we talked about writing in, wasn't she the one on the horse? In the I, I don't know parade? if she was the one on the horse, but she was the organizer of the parade yeah. who had been trained by like British militants, but she yep. was very like, Oh, we need to have a segregated parade. Yeah. 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 She and was Ida great. B. Wells was like, no. And then refused. Yeah. So you won't be surprised that she didn't throw her support behind these issues either. She Mm -hmm. went on to found the NWP, National Women's Party, and Mm -hmm. it was a single issue group focused on passing Mm -hmm. the Equal Rights Amendment. What have we learned about single issue groups? Bad, bad. And ERA. (laughs) Of course it's implicated. Like now we have to do a whole thing on the ERA. We are. Isn't that a plan? I think we're going to do a whole, we're doing a whole thing on the ERA. But yeah, the roots of the ERA are in some dirty laundry. That's Mm. for sure. Um, A woman we're going to talk about in more detail coming up here in just a little bit, Virginia Durr. um, She said of the NWP, They are the most rigid sectarian women I have ever known. They wouldn't talk to you about anything but their own cause. Okay. So again, to keep support of their Southern members, Paul refused to fight Jim Crow laws. She led an autocratically run single-minded single-issue group. It's. I do think it's really instructive now to have this in my head of like clear red flags. Yep. That it's just so... Uh, it it seems so obvious, you know, but that yep. those those things together are just like a toxic recipe for garbage. Yep. So I found um, in a FAQ web page from Iowa State's uh, mm-hmm. website on mm-hmm. Carrie Chapman Cat. They said many of the women active in the suffrage movement shifted their focus to social welfare policies and equal rights legislation. In 1920, 14 women's rights organizations formed the Women's Joint Congressional Committee to lobby for social welfare legislation at the federal level. They were successful in establishing a pension program for poor women with children, educational and industrial reforms such as child labor laws, and the Shepherd Towner Act of 1921, which provided states for federal funding for maternity and child care. The number of women in the workplace rose, but very slowly, and employment was predominantly for white women in white-collar jobs, such as typing, sales, and stenography. Most of the immediate gains were enjoyed only by white women. So the women of the Mm -hmm. suffrage movement moved right on to continuing to help other white women. So the 19th Amendment granted suffrage to the majority of African-American women in name only, with state loopholes such as poll taxes and literacy tests preventing many African-American women and men from exercising their their right to vote until the passage of the Voting Rights Act in 1965. It's interesting to circle back. Yeah, for sure, sad trombone sound. Um, (laughs) But it's, it's interesting to think about Christina Coleman Mullen's work with care in action that is helping build political power for domestic workers, because thinking about certain jobs or positions that relegated women of color into them because other jobs weren't open or available Mm -hmm. and there were stigmas, you know, for white women to participate in those jobs. So it's. It reminds me of the New Deal. Even a friend of mine just finished a chapter. We should have her come on and talk about this actually, because she was writing about um, the the racism inherent within the New Deal, and part of it was that Social Security and like pension, you know, like 
job protections weren't didn't include sharecroppers and didn't include migrant farm workers, like really intentionally did not include particular types of work that were largely done disproportionately by people of color. Mm -hmm. And so this just to me seems like the precursor to that. Like, great, we're going to have this organization for stenographers, like surprise, it's a bunch of white women. Yeah. And we'll just leave these other jobs for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Oh God. Yeah. I like oh. just, I'm going to take a sip of water, but I really wish this was something stronger. Honestly. <laughs> okay. So we're going to focus most of the rest of this conversation on the movement um, to repeal poll tax, because this is where most of the okay. information about white women's involvement after the 1920s leading up to the 1965 Voting Rights Act is, which we have to acknowledge is problematic to begin with, because Mm. their lack of involvement in the other Mm. ways of of suppressing voters is just belies racism once again, because the the poll tax is where they felt basically the oppression of things. So they went on to try to fight these poll taxes. Um, Black women even had they paid the tax, were still disenfranchised and primarily by what we just talked about a little bit ago, the white primaries that were in the Mm -hmm. South. So they Mm -hmm. could, even if they had the money to pay the poll tax and they were registered as voters, their votes ended up not counting because the decision was made before they could even Mm -hmm. get to the ballot Mm -hmm. box, let alone talking about all of the intimidation stuff, the literacy tests, all of that kind of Mm -hmm. things. So the focus on the poll tax is problematic to begin with. Nevertheless, it is where the history is at. So we're going to talk. And it it also did influence states, southern states, thinking about ratifying the 19th Amendment before it was ratified. The poll tax came up um, Hmm. as something that could cause a problem because in many of their state constitutions, at that point, the poll tax was only required to be paid by men. And it said by males in their constitutions because women and black people were not and black women were not thought of as even a problem. So one author writing about how the amendment could affect the poll tax said, then both black and white women could vote without payment. And that would result in a discrimination to which the male citizens of the state would most strenuously object and would overthrow one of the most important restrictions on voting, which the framers of the Constitution intended to secure. The payment of the poll tax so far in advance of the election, because they could require it nine months before an election that it had to be paid, um, and its cumulative provisions, because it adds if you haven't paid it in previous years, has resulted in restricting the exercise of the elective franchise by the Negro citizen more than any other provision of the state constitution. So this was written back at the time of the 19th Amendment, blatantly stating this is the purpose of this poll tax in the Constitution. We are trying to keep black people from voting. And if you ratify the amendment, you're going to mess this part up because now women will be able to vote. That includes black women because our Constitution just says males. Now we're going to have to deal with that. Blah, blah, blah. Our sexism caught up with our racism. (laughs) Shit. (laughs) I mean, it's it's what their constitutions intended to secure by putting in a poll tax. Mm-hmm. But let's talk about that. So poll taxes have been around forever. Um, 
since colonial times as this kind of means test. And when they were first put into place, it was supposed to be to ensure that a voter was financially independent enough to prove that their vote could not be bribed and could not be paid well, for by someone shady else. because I feel like rich people take bribes all the time. Like, I don't think there's a... <laughs> threshold where you're like i'm not corruptible like oh my god the most well, people i know are well <laughs> which i wrote this Jeez. is hysterical oh in my, my notes god. for that reason alone because historically it was a bunch of bullshit from the beginning to even say that that was a reason it has yeah, always course. been used to disenfranchise blacks and poor white people to mm-hmm. actually maintain power in the hands of the wealthy the business owners to make sure that the correct people were running things to represent what they needed them to represent to basically continue to uphold white supremacy. But it was also outright bullshit because from the very beginning, a lot of states allowed third parties to pay the poll tax for their constituents. So unions, businesses, employers, civic groups were allowed to pay the poll taxes. Mm. The the money involvement in politics was there from the very beginning, Mm. um, which was exactly what it was supposed to prevent. So there's an example in Arkansas that one of the places where they kept these authorization forms where people could authorize a third party to pay for them was in liquor parlors. So men could go in and get their alcohol and authorize then the owner of the liquor parlor to pay their poll tax, thereby representing the liquor industry in politics. Mm -hmm. They could secure what they wanted in in terms of, you know, anti-prohibition and all of that kind Mm -hmm. of stuff. So this has been there forever. I mean, we could go on and on about this. We could get into a deep dive about Citizens United and that whole decision. And you know, I I have not read the majority statement on Citizens United. I only know about it from the little blurbs that I read in news articles and hear other people talk about. So I'm going to say I'm sure that I wouldn't even understand all of the lingo if I read it. But blah, 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 blah. I don't need a law degree <laughs> to understand that what is happening there is just basically the recodification of white supremacy into our laws. Justice Kennedy, I am talking to you. yes Yes. you're not hiding this bullshit from anybody but it's been around forever and it just keeps coming back in so um (sighs) yeah it's real disappointing they've been around so the details that i kind of touched on there so in most states it was a one to two dollar per year um tax to vote which i think i read somewhere equates to anywhere depending on the numbers, from $15 to $60 a year in order to register to vote in today's money. Mm -hmm. However, it was cumulative, meaning that had you decided for some reason you didn't want to vote for a few years and you hadn't paid the tax, when you wanted to go back and vote in the next election, you had to pay the tax for all of those years that you didn't vote. No, this is why you don't return library books. Like, your (laughs) fines keep... Adding up, just pretend it never happened. Yeah. This is infuriating. And it reminds me to like it it's such an um like damned if you do, damned if you don't, because it's why you call bullshit on all of these attempts, you know, like, oh, we're gonna prevent voter fraud, but like actually we can see through exactly what's happening. Like the like purging of people off of voter rolls if they haven't voted in the previous election. 
while at the same time making it harder to get to an election because you're narrowing the hours, you're narrowing the number of polls, you don't have a national federal holiday for an election, so people have to work. Like, you cannot have it both ways. It's the same thing with reproductive rights. Like, you cannot simultaneously make abortion illegal and then make birth control harder to access Mm -hmm. and not have sex ed. The yep. fuck is wrong with you? Like those, you, <laughs> then I don't believe you. I don't yeah, believe no, no. what you say. Yeah, so yeah. it's the same thing with voting. Like, yep. I don't believe you. I can see through your very sad ruse. I, I picture someone like with like one of those like plastic glasses with a mustache. Like, oh, hello, it's not me. It's like, everyone knows it's you. Yeah. Like everyone can see what you're doing. It's stupid. Uh, yeah. It's That's, ridiculous. Oh my God. This is yeah. just, it gets, I mean, it I gets worse. How, What's oh great okay well <laughs> what I'm hoping is that this would have been a moment for like poor white people and black people to be in solidarity with each other I'm guessing a little, that didn't happen a okay, little a little okay that's yeah. more than I thought I yeah yeah so th- as I also mentioned some laws required that this be paid nine months before the election so if you didn't live there or you didn't have right. the money nine months before right. maybe you got it before like a couple months before the election too bad you missed the deadline um, and in 1920s coverture was still in place meaning women didn't have access to any of their own money everything that they owned once they got married then went to their husbands so for women this was like a double problem because they couldn't get to the money unless their husbands gave it to them. So you're looking at this period in history, you're thinking the man already has to pay a poll tax. Now, if a woman wants to vote, she has to pay a poll tax. She has to go to her husband and ask for the money. And if there's any sort of like money issues, if they're not just flush rolling in the dough back then, they're going to have to make a choice between who can they pay for. And obviously, they're going to let the man vote. So the women are... Or if he doesn't think women should vote, he will just yeah. tell her no. Yeah. So he's going to yeah, say no. This so this so is just compounded like more and more and more. And as mm. the 1920s moves into the 1930s and then the Great Depression, mm. this becomes a huge issue because then mm. nobody has the money to pay these poll taxes. And right. that's really when the anti-poll tax movement kind of takes off is when this is It's when it affects white people. When it affects the white people it wasn't affecting before. In- Interest convergence and people who think critical race theory is not a thing are very ignorant yeah. <laughs> as to history. Like this is such a classic example of where something isn't a problem until it's a problem for white people. Yeah. And then suddenly, lo and behold, there's action. Yep, exactly. Great. Oh, my God. So we know that the League of Women Voters and the National Women's Party wasn't all up in arms about this. Um, so the question then is, who gets involved in this whole movement? And I'm interested to see if you have heard of the name Virginia Foster Durr. Um, Ring a just bell? moments ago when you mentioned her. That's <laughs> so, right. Yes. This as is of where this podcast, yes. we're going to talk about okay, Miss Virginia Foster Durr. She's super interesting. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time because there's so much more to talk about. And as always, yeah, time goes by great. so fast. Um, but she was born in 1903. She was born in the South. She was a granddaughter of a slave owner and a Ku Klux Klan member. So, so she's a white lady. She's just a white clarify. lady. She's, okay. a, she's a white, white lady. So mm-hmm. she attended Wellesley College for her undergraduate um, education. And she credits it as being the catalyst for her moral transformation. So at Wellesley mm-hmm. at that time, they had this policy in their dining hall of rotating tables. 
At each meal, you had to sit with other students at random, regardless of their race. So they, so people could not form cliques. You were made to sit at these assigned tables where you could be with people of other race. And initially, she protested against it and caused this big, huge stink because of her background. But the head of her, the house that she lived in said that she was either going to have to deal with it or she would be dismissed from the college. I love it. So she this had to do so it. Fascinating. And she okay. credits that as how she learned that basically she was wrong about everything wow. that she thought about people of other races and huh. completely changed the trajectory that she Can was on. So talk? these sorts of policies are also <laughs> amazing. What would this woman have right. done had she never gone to Wellesley? And it just shows how you have to have really active policies like that. It can't just, you know, you have to take really proactive stances. I'm also picturing the poor people who had to sit with her for like the first, you know, seven months that she was yeah. like, I don't want to do this. Like, I'm sure their <laughs> meals sucked and that yeah. they were like, who drew the short straw to sit with Virginia today? <laughs> right. God, like thanks oh. to them for putting up with her at these meals. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Wow. But okay. here's where it gets like, this is super interesting. I'm like, how do I not know this? I'm sure I should. Mm. Anyway, so her history goes on and she married this guy, Cliff. He was a lawyer. He seems lovely. Um, they employed a woman as a seamstress in their home who was named Rosa Parks. Stop. And this is the Rosa Parks of Rosa Parks. When Brown versus the Board of Education went into effect, they had they were very highfalutin people. Her sister-in-law, so her husband's sister, was married to a Supreme Court justice, Hugo Black, mm. who comes into things later. Oh, so they were very okay. connected people. So when Brown versus Board of Education went into effect, um, this is much later on, not related to voting, but someone asked her for a recommendation of someone that could get a scholarship to go in and integrate schools. And she nominated Rosa Parks, who was her mm. seamstress, to be mm. a person to go do that. Um, anyway, so then when Rosa Parks got involved in the bus um, protests and she got arrested when she refused to move out of the bus on the day we all know about, she and her husband went and bailed her out of jail. And then her husband was her lawyer and represented her. Wow. Um, this is Virginia Durr. Wow. This is, yeah, Virginia huh. Durr. So Thank she was you, involved dining in... Dining hall policies. Yeah. She was involved <laughs> in all of these things. So... She mm -hmm. um, also she was friends with Eleanor Roosevelt, never hurts to be friends with the first lady. Mm -hmm. um, but she got very involved in politics in this whole time period. Um, and she became the leader of another group I'm sure none of us have ever heard of, but was very influential in this time period called the National Committee Against the Poll Tax. Mm -hmm. And it was a subcommittee of the... Southern, I think it's Southern Conference for Human Welfare. Um, mm. I wrote that down out somewhere and then I just abbreviated it here as the NCHW. Um, but anyway, she was on that um, committee and then they made this subcommittee that was the National Committee to Abolish the Poll Tax. Mm. She was actually not the head of it. They had this white man as the head of the committee mm -hmm, but sure. as you go mm -hmm. of course as you do well, penises are the only thing that help you know how to run a meeting exactly. i mean it's it all comes out of the, the genitals that's right the penis. yes <laughs> that's where the magic leadership yeah. comes out <laughs> so right? they yeah. you're the doctor mandy it's not me you would know more about that than i would <laughs> clearly 
clearly. Um, but she was basically the leader in everything that I read. It said he was just a figurehead. She ran the group. She was in charge of all of it. Also involved in this group was um, Mary Church Terrell, who we did talk about in previous. Um, mm-hmm. Another very influential black woman who we should talk more about, Mary McLeod Bethune. Um, oh, and yes. then another white woman that I really hope we do something more about, which I was just talking about, Katie, um, with this Lillian Smith, who was oh, great, a great, great friend of Martin Luther King Jr. She was mentioned in his um, letter from a Birmingham jail. He actually mm-hmm. talked about her in that letter. So anyway, mm-hmm. they were all involved in this committee. Lillian Smith left it later. There was a little controversy. Um, so Durr was in charge of it at that point. Um, and as we know, there was not a lot of great integration between white women and black women throughout all of this. But she did seem to push against that uh, a little bit. She wanted there to be more integration. So she's um, there was this recognition, which we've talked about, that women's rights traditionally had meant property rights. I got this from one of these papers, and I think it was this um, Podolevsky one that I mentioned. Um, so they meant property rights, the right to vote, other legal and political issues of relevance to white middle-class women who comprise the bulk Mm -hmm. of the movement. Reforms of particular interest to black women or working-class women, such as the protection of the the protection of the right to vote have been pushed aside as racial or class matters. Um, But Durr said, let me pull up her quote, because she talked a lot about her history and how she got involved in this. And so many of the things that she said, I'm like, again, this is an example of how there were always people pushing back against these things who knew right, the right thing right. that we should have been doing. Um, like and, against that argument that like, oh, people just didn't know or like, oh, they were products of their time when you're like, well, let's look at some of their contemporaries and what they were saying. Yeah, let's it's see what happened. more complicated. Yeah. yeah. So she says... Um, In the late 1930s, the goal of the Women's Division of the Democratic National Committee was to get rid of the poll tax so white Southern women could vote. There was no mention in the Democratic Committee at that time of black people. There were no Negroes in the Women's Division. Of course, very few black people in the South voted, but the Southern women didn't vote either. She said, I keep telling the women today, if you are just going to work for women's rights, you're not going to get anywhere. You have to work for the rights of other people, too. Mm. Hello. So, yeah, yeah. so she knew. So, but even, but then, uh, even then, within the movement that she was working in, there was still the use of white women in racially motivated ways to try to win support from people that they shouldn't have been trying to win support of by using the whole race card of things. So there was this woman Mm -hmm. um, who was also involved in the movement. She was... She Okay, so she was actually the founder of the Southern Conference for Human Welfare, which the spinoff group for the poll tax was from. Her name was Lucy Randolph Mason. And she's white. And she's a white woman. Okay. Um, So it says about her and how she was used in this. In this movement, sorry if you can hear my papers, I'm getting to no, the I'm point. Just, I'm so impressed you look Where, so official. Right? So it was, so Durr said of her, Miss Lucy was a pretty, dainty, white-haired Virginia lady who wore glasses. She was extremely aristocratic and had a lovely, soft Virginia voice. 
Um, and she talks about this man who is a bright man in many ways, immediately saw that Miss Lucy could be a great advantage in the South. As his public relations person, Miss Lucy would be very disarming. All the fierce poli- police chiefs and sheriffs and newspaper editors would be looking for some big gorilla to come in and Miss Lucy would appear. So using like your timid femininity kinds of ways to diffuse all of these situations in which you could be representing black people, but instead you're playing the little white woman mm-hmm. who can't be like attacked. You're using that to just further white people instead of using that to disrupt stuff. Yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. And later it says there was another person who said, um, and they're talking about Alabama here, but except for the help of the Alabama policy committee, Alabama's anti-poll tax fight has been carried out chiefly by white women. This is fortunate. Women in the South can defy the Negro domination threat without loss Ugh. of gallantry. Gross. Yeah. So there's still we're still facing all of this racism within the movement. And it said so they say that because of this, black women had formed their own organizations, including the National Association mm-hmm. of Colored Women, the National Council of Negro Women to fight racial discrimination and foster solidarity among black women. They sought contact with white women's organizations, but were often overlooked if they did not insist on inclusion in their coalitions. Women's organizations in this period, like their 19th century predecessors, remained largely segregated. Ugh. Yeah. Like, ugh. ugh, is right. I mean, but <laughs> they did have, so it's like both Mary Church Terrell, head of the NACW, um, and Mary McLeod Bethune worked with the NCAF to abolish the poll mm. tax. Um, it was supported mm. by Eleanor Roosevelt. But um, I'm going to find this one part that I thought, okay, was really important that even though they worked with it, they said, you know, some white women's groups attempted to distance themselves from race baiting that they saw as an obstacle to their campaign. But sadly, reminiscent of early suffragists, some attempted to soothe white, can't talk, soothe white supremacist fears with reassurances that removal of the poll tax would help white women and not increase the blacked vote. Um, God. So there's just all this. It just continues. It just keeps going on Same and on. And I mean, different verse. Yeah, different verse. So I'm the last like thing I want to discuss on this before we kind of wrap up the whole poll tax issue is just the realization that white supremacy has never been interested in increasing voter turnout. Right. Yes. Yes. Yes, this is I mean, it's evidence in the anti-poll tax movement. The last paper that I did find that has some really great stuff on this um, brings this out. So it doesn't help. They're talking about how it didn't help to have increased voter turnout. And this woman who was um, the assistant director of the women's division of the Democratic National Committee, white woman, North Carolinan May Thompson Evans. She kind of pushed against this a little bit, and she got herself in a little bit of trouble for it. She was speaking at a luncheon for Alabama's Democratic women, and she said, The South will pass into partial eclipse as a power in the Democratic Party unless unless we turn in now to get out our votes. Though seemingly a logical avenue 
towards increased power, Evans' call for a larger voter pool was actually quite unusual in the context of the late 1930s. With the exception of chapters of the NAACP, few seemed interested in increasing the number of Alabama's voters, black or white. Democratic leaders in the state wanted to extend their party's strength, but expanding the number of those actively involved in the voting process has not been a part of that enterprise. Unmanageable numbers of voters and uncontrolled voter registration could weaken the holds of dominant factions. Mm. So she was apparently aware of her of the subversive implication of her remarks, but she went on in this luncheon and told people, so if we don't increase our numbers, we're going to be in trouble in the national convention. Before, well, up until this point, when the Democratic National Committee decided upon a, um, a candidate, it had been done by two-thirds of the majority of votes. Mm. They were talking about in the 1940s convention changing that to a straight based on the numbers of votes, not a two-thirds um, part of that. So if that movement were successful, it says a dramatic increase in the number of Southern ballots would mitigate the erosion of Southern influence and the nomination process of the party. She said New York alone cast more votes than 10 Southern states combined. The North's yeah. greater advantage was not due to its large population, but the fact that its citizens voted in so much larger percentages than did those in Southern states. So she's mm -hmm. saying if they go to a straight vote, the Southern voice mm -hmm. is going to be diminished because we're suppressing our voters is basically what she was saying. She's like the voter turnout at that point in time in Alabama was 18.4 percent in 1932. And that's aggregate. That's I'm sure it was every, like yeah. much lower for voters of color. Oh, yeah, that's everybody. In Virginia, the voter mm -hmm. turnout was 25 percent. Mm -hmm. Contrast North Carolina, which had abolished the poll tax. They had a 60 percent turnover. And nationally mm -hmm. in states that or turnout nationally in states that didn't have poll taxes, they were up to 70 percent voter turnout. So she's like voter turnout is going to kill the South because mm -hmm. we're not going to have the representation if they move to, you know, a one vote, one person, one vote kind of thing, which I would just like to bring up at this point briefly. Also, why the Electoral College is racist. So, <laughs> I'm just going to pull oh. down. I'm going to bring it all up. But that's what I was thinking of while I was reading yeah. this. I was like, yes, yeah. all of these yeah. arguments about how we need the Electoral College because otherwise these smaller states don't get representative like bullshit. It's all mm -hmm. a scheme to continue yes. giving disproportionate power to racism. That's yeah. what I'm contending. Yes. Anyway. <laughs> I will again grab your hand and jump off with you. Anyway, I mean, so you would think so brain melting. Yeah. So you would think we're like, go Evans. She's telling him we've got to get rid of this poll tax so that we can increase our influence. Mm, however, she goes mm -hmm. all white lady on us at the end of the speech. Mm -hmm. She says, at the risk of touching a sore spot, I'm going to say I think you should get rid of the poll tax. You are not voting your full strength and you can't vote your full strength until you do. And let no one raise the race question about it. North Carolina, Louisiana, Florida have all abolished the poll tax as a requisite for suffrage. And there have been no disastrous results. Ew. What do you think she meant by disastrous? 
<laughs> results. Oh my god, it's almost like don't worry, we've got other tricks. It's exactly that won't hurt exactly, us. Exactly, this trick hurts us. So and this is what the author one. of this article, Sarah Wilkerson Freeman, says. What Evans meant was that white supremacy was protected by other racially discriminatory disfranchising devices, especially literacy tests um, that were secure in the non poll tax Southern states. Indeed, mm-hmm. Evans implied that Southern white political power was not guaranteed as long as so many Southern whites, especially Southern white Democratic women, faced the obstacle of the poll tax. Mm. So they had to get rid of the poll tax in order for white women to continue to vote to secure the power of the white supremacy in the South, going straight on back to our good old friend Carrie and all of the mm-hmm. bullshittery that was pulled in that. And she says, in the context of the history of women's suffrage in the region, Evans' decision to use the expedient states' rights approach probably seemed a logical strategy. Again, <sighs> gross. Now gross. I'm doubly pissed because I've lost my appetite for chocolate sea salt covered almonds. <laughs> now I just want to like sit and stare off into space and shake my fist. Like yeah. it's just, and I think why I'm so enraged is because it's all still happening happening it's all still happening yeah and we're gonna get to that we're gonna get to it when we discuss after this 1965 voting rights act but basically what this sets up as there has to be a national amendment to repeal the poll tax or a a constitutional amendment to repeal the poll tax because states just aren't going to get it done It's not going to happen. It's going to continue to be suppressed. In fact, there was something that said between 1942 and 1949, there were several um, legal strategies and cases brought up to try to get rid of the poll tax. They were all killed by Southern filibusters. Need I turn to one more fucking racist relic that we continue to use today? The motherfucking filibuster. (laughs) If we don't get rid of that, oh my gosh. See, I could go off electoral college, filibuster. (laughs) Oh my God. I could go on and on. The last, um, I I don't know the name of the Supreme Court case, but it was the one that was like, Okay, the South doesn't have to run their plans by us anymore. Like you guys have learned your lesson, everything's fine. Yeah, now. yeah. This is what just took all the power recently out of the Voting Ugh. Rights Act. Yeah, yeah, totally. No. So anyway, they had to move to the national tactic again, and then the Twenty Fourth Amendment was passed, which said that a poll tax mm-hmm. was unconstitutional. However, several states kept doing it, and so then there had to be. Another, I think there was a Supreme Court ruling after that that then further solidified it. And I have it written down, but we're out of time. You can all look into it. Well, no, this, but again, I'm sure it was like, okay, thank God, legally they're out of the, you know, they can't move any further. But to your point of the quote you read about like August 24th versus August 25th, yeah. like the same shitty people are still there fighting the fight. Like, okay, so they shut it down. I'm sure they were just like, all right, roll up your sleeves. Let's get creative and figure out yeah. other ways to fuck people How over. How else are we going to do this? Right. It, it's like, it's yep. the same with, um, you know, the court case that found in favor of defending same-sex marriage. It's not like everyone who's homophobic was like, oh, well, we did our best, champs. You yep. know, let's, we'll, you know, better luck next time. No, yeah. of course they just like dig in double down, how can we? And the, the, you know, honestly, I think for progressives, the same is true. Like, just because there's a defeat, you weren't like, oh fuck. Like, you were like, okay, we got to figure it out. Mm-hmm, I think that's mm-hmm. just how these struggles work. But it's so hard to hear this history, knowing how live all these issues yeah. are right now. 
Yeah. So it was Harper versus the Bo- Virginia Board of Elections, the Supreme Court case that mm-hmm. last declared the poll tax is unconstitutional. Um and it says, I wanted to read this part. Almost. But what without- about the schmolschmacks? Like, <laughs> can we do that? Ooh, that one sounds good. Sounds yeah. good. Let me just put my mustache on. I'm a completely <laughs> different lawyer. Oh, um, so the final part of this article says almost. Wait, hold on. This is part of another book they're quoting. Almost without exception, each legal change or improvement has reflected the America of past, not its future. All of these changes in the legal status of women and their own society's perceptions about them occurred as policy and opinion makers were moving on to other and more important and innovative activities. So what they're Mm -hmm. saying at this point, this basically passed, they're saying, because the poll tax had outlived its economic effectiveness right? at this point in time. Again. So it was like, okay, fine. <gasps> we'll let you have this because it's really not working that well. We don't really need it anyway. anyway so you can have mm-hmm. it. Um, and mm-hmm. the point that here's a point that illustrates that. So repeal of the poll tax opened polls to white women, but it still kept barriers to black women. Example, Louisiana's Huey Long which I know that name, but I can't remember exactly what he was in Louisiana. Governor, I don't know, something. Yeah, um, and I think he ran for president was like, yeah. Yeah, so he rep- repealed the poll tax in his state, um, but required, after it was repealed, required voters to sign a poll book that was kept in each sheriff's office. The real or fancied <laughs> inhospitality inhospitality of the sheriff's offices apparently proved as restraining to the Negroes as had been planned. Negroes registering to vote dropped 12% after the repeal of the poll tax. Yeah, that's not suspicious at all. Oh, you can definitely vote. You just have to come to this like part-time police officer, part-time clan member and And sign sign a book with your address and name. Yeah. That doesn't, what, what's wrong with that? Yeah. What's the problem there? So, victories are not victories. Oof. Shit. <laughs> There's, yeah, a big old wah-wah on your no, day. No, but I, I, you know, yes and no. Like, it is infuriating and depressing, but it also is just, like, absolute conviction to not let your guard down and that these tactics are live wires that are still sparking around and hurting people and we have to throw our weight behind whatever that weight is collectively throw it into efforts to make elections more accessible to make elections easier for people to participate in for more people to participate in them i mean iowa was the last state that just finally um, allows convicted felons to get their voting rights back i mean mm-hmm. there's like that's a whole rabbit hole we could go down to yep. of all the ways that oh, we disenfranchisement is linked to racism. Mm-hmm. And it's just, um, yeah, it's really interesting to know. And I, I so appreciate it. And I, I, I love that you're like the petty detective because <laughs> I want to know all the loose ends. I don't want you to let any of these women off the hook. So uh, yeah, that'll be like your new spinoff show, Mandy Griffin. Petty detective. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot. 
so much more than I thought was going to be there. And I mean, honestly, these articles that I even just referenced paragraphs out of, they're like 40 and 50 pages long. Yeah, There's yeah, yeah. so much in them that's just fascinating, horrifying, but instructive and important. Yes, and right. Exactly. So we will put links. Um, you may have to find a friend that one of them is public access. You may have to find a friend that has some sort of uh, academic access to get some of the other ones. Um, but I'll, we'll put stuff up. You can get more. I can be that friend if you want to email yeah. me at Katie at our dirty laundry podcast.com. Yeah. But yeah, please check out our Instagram. Please check out our blog where we post um, links and audio clips and all sorts of good stuff from these conversations. Mandy, that was awesome. I cannot wait for part two. And I really appreciate all of your energies with that. Mm. So thank you. All right. We'll talk to you next time, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.